the second you take on a paying customer, you're now stopping investors from dreaming. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number nine, and today's guest is Todd Saunders. Todd is the co-founder and CEO of AdHoc and Floorforce. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. I'm joined today by Todd Saunders, the CEO and co-founder of AdHoc. Well, welcome, Todd, to the Marketing Playbook. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy that you're able to make some time. Uh, I think this is going to be a great show and a great story for our listeners. Let's talk. Uh, let's jump right in. You know, we all are function of our growing up and our upbringing. Tell the audience a little bit about you know where you grew up and all those things that prepared you for where you are today. Sure. Well, I'm lucky enough to grow up in Westfield, New Jersey, where I know uh, you live as well. So I grew up in Westfield basically my whole life, went to middle school and high school there, along with uh, my brother who also went to Westfield High School and all of my cousins. So um, had a large family growing up all in the same, basically, you know, four or five mile radius, all going to the same high school. After high school, went to uh, college at William & Mary in Virginia. I actually ran track there. Uh, I had no business in terms of GPA or SATs getting into William & Mary, but I um, was lucky that I was half decent at sprinting 100 and 200 meters that they decided to let me in. Um, was at William & Mary for four years, and that kind of set me up for the rest of my life, honestly. Yeah, that's amazing. And your parents went to uh, Westfield High School, right? They did, and they were next-door neighbors, if I'm correct. They've been dating since they were in sixth grade. So, yeah, there's some a high standard for uh, dating in Westfield and staying <laughs> in Westfield. Right. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that, that's great. And when you were in, uh, in high school, you played soccer, right? Yep, yep. Um, growing up, I played kind of all sports, but in – in high school, I played soccer. I was convinced that I was going to be a professional soccer player. And I tell this story a bunch, but I think every student athlete believes that their future is going to be some professional athlete until one day they wake up and realize that that's probably not going to happen. And I'm very fortunate that although I had a passion for soccer, I ran track to stay in shape. And what I realized when I was a junior in, in high school was that I was never going to be a professional soccer player or a professional runner. I don't know what happened, but I just woke up one day and realized that and said, okay, I will do either of these things, whichever one gets me into the best college possible, I'm just going to do. And that's what's going to kind of augment my very average grades. Uh, so I was very lucky that honestly, just, it hit me that I wasn't going to do either of those things. And I, how could I leverage soccer or track to get me to the next level? And that's really what I did. And, and how far back was it, as, as far back as high school or earlier, or maybe even, you know, it was later, did you think that, you know, being an entrepreneur was, was something in the future for you? Yeah. You know, my dad owns his own accounting business, so I knew um, we're very similar in a lot of ways. 
I kind of look at entrepreneurship as my new sport or my new competition. I mean, it is the sports that I do now more often than not. And kind of it's the competition that drives me every day. So I was always trying to start little things here and there in college. But listen, growing up, I knew that I'd be pretty tough to work for someone. And, you know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win. And the big company lifestyle just wasn't for me. So I did spend a little bit of time at Google. Um, Obviously, that's a lot different than starting a company or being an entrepreneur. Google has, you know, like 50,000 employees. And although it was great, I knew from day one there, it wasn't for me. So I would say growing up, I knew I wanted to start something, but I didn't necessarily know what that meant or what that took. And I would honestly say going to Google cemented that I didn't want to be part of the big company culture that doing something small and having everything in my own hands was really for me. Right. And and so let's go down the, the path of Google. So, you know, you're graduating William and Mary. Um, you're happy that you got in. You're happy you survived yep. four years, I imagine. And <laughs> now you're thinking, all right, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How does Google uh, fit into that picture? Yeah. So to kind of get you all the way to Google. So sophomore year of college. So yeah, track let me into William and Mary. That was great. I ran track for two years, ended up getting surgery. And just honestly, I was in and I just wanted to be a regular college student. And I think that's when I started getting into entrepreneurship. Once I had, wasn't waking up at 6 a.m. to run circles around the track and just be a real student, I needed that sense of competitiveness. So when I was a junior, my goal was basically to network with as many people as possible. I realized early that it wasn't necessarily what you know, but who you know. Um, so I was reaching out to everyone and anyone. You know, We had conversations. Basically, anyone that went to William & Mary or anyone that went to Westfield High School or anyone that would basically remotely connected with me on LinkedIn in some fashion, I would reach out to and just try to build networking conversations because then senior year, I had all of my friends who were kind of just having those conversations, whereas I had had those. So I was getting you know really nice referrals from a bunch of folks as I was applying. And what's funny, connecting that to today, one of my favorite blog posts ever is show lines, not dots. Um, It's a really good blog post about raising capital. And what it talks about, and this is honestly what happened to us at Ad Hoc, is when you're talking to investors, you don't want to say, okay, we're here, we're doing 25 million in revenue, you know, great union economics, we're ready to raise capital. Well, that's one dot, right? How can you show them multiple dots progression over a year or two years of your company or of your life? So they can say, oh my God, look how much this person's achieved or this company has achieved. Imagine if I gave them money or imagine if I helped them. And that's really the approach I took when we were fundraising for our company. But to just connect the dots at the beginning here, that was the approach I took without knowing it junior year of college where I said, I'm going to reach out to this network of, I don't know, 40 or 50 folks. I'm going to reach out to them periodically, give them updates on my life and, and what I'm trying to do, ask for advice. When you ask for advice, you know, they say when you ask for advice, you get money. When you ask for money, you get advice. So constantly asking for advice, knowing that in a year or two down the road, I was going to be like, hey, listen, you've seen everything on my, me personally. You've seen, you know, we now have a relationship over two years and you know who I am. Now I could potentially ask you for a favor to refer me to Google or, or whatever company you're connected with. So took that approach. Um, funny enough, taking that approach worked where I got referrals to you know, Procter and Gamble and Facebook and, you know, all these really big companies. 
And when I was going through the process, I actually randomly applied to Google and ended up getting an interview with Google and obviously accepting my job offer from Google. So the moral of that whole story is, I guess, like, yes, that all really, really helped me. And I would do it all over again is like, show lines, not dots, build the connections, build it over time so that when you need something, you know, you have a relationship. But when it all came down to it, I just randomly applied to Google and got the job. Um, this is after being rejected about 100 times for every internship at Google in my life. Right. Not easy to get in there. And when I got the offer from Google, actually, the last interview, they asked me if I'd be willing to go to Mountain View, uh, San Francisco or Ann Arbor. And I honestly, I had all my friends in New York, Ann Arbor, Michigan seemed very close. I wasn't sure I was super ready just to go to California when all my friends are going to the East Coast. I never even been to California. I wasn't even sure what that meant. But I told them I will do anything to work at this company. I've never even been to Michigan before. If I have to go live in Michigan, that's fine. So ended up accepting a role in Michigan. Um, was in Ann Arbor for a year in 2013. And I think I was one of the few people, like I, I actually talked to a few folks that refused to go to Michigan that all wanted to go to California. So I just knew early on if I could get in, that's all I needed to do. And then I could work my way up, no different than William & Mary or anything else of that nature. Right. So there's a very consistent theme there. Do whatever it takes to get where you want to go. And, and I think you referred to this before, you'll do anything to win. So yep. um, I, I think that's a good message here. W with respect to Google, so you, you take this job and you, you go out to uh, Ann Arbor. W was this... Um, outside your comfort zone, would you say, to, you know, pick up and move from, you know, the East Coast and your friends were going to be here, your family was here. Was it outside your, your uh, comfort zone to move away? Yeah. You know, not only was I going to moving away from New York where all my friends were moving to, moving to Michigan was never something I had ever considered. It's really cold in Michigan. It's just nothing I had been around. But listen, I knew I could do anything for a year, uh, meet new people, uh, see what's going on. It always helps that Ann Arbor has a huge college campus, obviously, University of Michigan. Um, so that was, you know, almost like a fifth year in a way because I get to still be on the campus. Um, but I honestly would have traded it for anything. I talked to my friends who started in Mountain View and what, what was much different was I had a start class, right? Because my office was only 2,000 people. Mountain View was 20, maybe 25,000 people. So I had a very tight-knit start class of like 20 people where we all started together, we all, we all moved to Michigan together, we all were kind of in the same situation, moving from college to Google, starting together, all exploring Ann Arbor. And we had like, I don't want to call it a pledge class, but it was kind of like that, where we were all kind of going through the Google training together. So I built a lot of really, really good friendships that I still have today, whereas my friends are starting in Mountain View, because it's so big, there was no uh, you didn't really build that relationship and have that start class. It was kind of just you sitting there in a room of 25,000 people, which made it very difficult. Right. And, and what did Google hire you to do? What was your job? So I was an account manager on the AdWords team. Uh, so my job was I managed a book of about 300 customers spending money on Google AdWords. And my job was to help make sure they are successful, um, help make sure they're utilizing Google's best products and newest products. And the reason Google does that is they know that they need to keep the longevity of these customers. If they can keep the, just, the customers happy, performing well, getting good ROI with their advertising, they'll stay around longer. So my job was basically a retention game, but by doing retention and helping the customers stay around using Google AdWords, 
it basically turned into an upsell conversation. So we were kind of a mix of account management, sales, um, and that's kind of where I started. Right. So you were showing, you know, brand X, here was the performance that you had, but you spent a thousand dollars. If you would have spent $2,000, here's how much more revenue you would have been able to achieve. Yep, exactly. And kind of how it works at Google is when you start, you manage books of 300, each spending a thousand bucks. And as you grow within that team, if you stay on that team, you end up kind of managing books of 150 spending 2000 or 50 minutes spending 20,000 a month. So you know, as you kind of grow on the AdWords team, you manage a smaller book of business that spends more money individually. And, and so now you're, you're at Google, you're in Mountain View, and then after some period of time, you wound up going to the West Coast, right? Yeah, so I um, was in Ann Arbor for a year. Um, my girlfriend at the time had moved to Mountain View, and I had just, at that point, I was over that my friends were in New York. I had kind of mm. gone over that fact completely. And in 2013, when I graduated was actually that winter that was like the coldest winter ever and it was so cold in Michigan and everyone kept telling me like oh this is the coldest it's ever been this is the coldest it's ever been and I totally didn't believe them I was like this is what Michigan always is this is awful I'm at Google get me I started getting the startup bug a little bit I knew that tech was blowing up in San Francisco I saw all these cool things going I was already away from my friends and family and realized it was fine I was always a flight away What's the difference between an hour and a half flight away and a five-hour flight away? Not much. So I started to get the itch to move to Mountain View, and I moved to Mountain View in 2014. Well, I moved to San Francisco working in the Mountain View office. Right. And basically, the work was similar or the same as what you were doing in uh, Michigan, but with just a different uh, book of business? Yep. So it started that way. Um, I had done really, really well in Ann Arbor. Again, a smaller office allowed me to stand out. I didn't have the same opportunities to grow horizontally, but it was really easy for me to work with the VPs and directors of my org because the office was so small. So I got a lot more recognition than I think was possible to do in Mountain View because Mountain View is just so many people. It's so hard to get any FaceTime. So um, ended up leading a team out in Mountain View and the story gets pretty interesting here. So I went to lead a team, you know, me and the manager of the team were kind of the two points of contact, a team of 20 people. One of the guys on the team, my first day, I saw sitting in the parking lot. Now, keep in mind at Google, we took about an hour, hour and a half bus from San Francisco to Mountain View every day. Um, and each way it was an hour and a half. So I remember one day, my like second day in Mountain View, the first day I'd met the whole team, gotten lost a few times. Second day I get there and I see this guy who's on my team, like chain smoking cigarettes in the parking lot of Google. And there's one thing I know about California. And there's one thing I know about Google is that you can smoke things, but you certainly can't smoke cigarettes, right? Like definitely not. That's like super frowned upon in tech, even at the Google campus, even more. California, no go. So I see him sitting there smoking like five cigarettes and I go up to him. I'm like, something's got to be wrong. Like, I know I just met you, but what's up? His name was Dan. Turns out he's actually my co-founder now. You know, we'll get to that part of the story. But anyway, so I'm smoking a bunch of cigarettes and I asked him what was wrong. And we started bonding over. He was from Boston, was in the startup community there. I was from New York. We both didn't really fit in on the West Coast. That was clear. We were very much East Coast, direct to the point people. But we started, I started probing him and I was like, so what's up? I know something's up. And he tells me that he was part of a startup in Boston that he was at for four years. 
and it wasn't going as planned. Uh, you know, he was one of the first employees. He gave his blood, sweat, and tears. The CEO was like, you know, an uncle to him or a second father to him, very, very close. And they ended up, Dan ended up wanting to leave because he got an opportunity at Google. And if you leave a startup to go join Google, that's like a biggest slap in the face, right? That's like you're going to the arch enemy. You're going to the 25, 50,000 person company. You're not in it to win as a startup and the underdog, you know, that type of thing. So huge falling out between the two, he tells me. And he said to make things right, he sold back his equity. So instead of owning the equity, he said, you know, I want to maintain this relationship. I know we're not going to like each other. I know you're mad at me, but I'll sell back all my equity. And as he's telling me this, he, sh- he pulls up his phone and shows me the news. And that day, his company that he sold back all the equity got acquired for $75 million. And with stock later on, it would be worth close to $150 million. And how much did he leave on the table? Millions. So that was how I met my co-founder at Google. He was on my team and I saw him smoking cigarettes, who he does not smoke, but I saw him smoking cigarettes on a corner at Google campus. So I knew you know, there was something that we would eventually do together, I guess. Right. And so now you're, you're, how many years did you spend in California? One year, a little over one year. Right. Okay. So now you've got a couple of years under your belt at, at the big, you know, 50,000 uh, uh, Google, big bad boy. And now you're starting to think about making a move and, and perhaps doing something entrepreneurially, leaving Google easy, hard, you know, did you have to, you know, really pour over that decision or was it a no brainer for you? Um, I knew I wanted to leave. Google does this thing that they call Google hand, uh, or they call golden handcuffs where every year they're giving you more stock that vests over four years. So it's basically impossible to leave. Like it is impossible. My friends who say they're going to leave all the time have still have not left. And listen, they treat you well, they free dinner, massages, taxis, free car rentals, free, free everything. But um, they do that for a reason, right? To try to keep you there. I sure. knew it just wasn't for me. Like I, I did not like being one of 50,000. I did not like that I could grind every single day or I could literally not show up to work for two weeks and Google's bottom line would not matter. Um, the other thing that was hard for me to wrap my head around was I was the top performer month over month, quarter over quarter but you could only get promoted within every two years and you had to go to this committee and this thing. And it was just, Google's not super political, but just being a 50,000 person company, you have to be political with some structure. And I remember my last review period, they had told me that, you know, I was going to get promoted, but I need to do better active listening. And no one could define to me what active listening was. And I was just like, I'm the highest of account manager. I have the most upsells. I have the highest retention what else matters? Um, and I just kind of got frustrated with the big company process. So knew in the back of my head, I was going to leave. And what actually how we ended up getting pushed over the edge was, so my co-founder Dan at the time, we were both on the same team, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do. We knew that we knew ad tech and advertising really well. We saw this unique opportunity where TurboTax was kind of your advisor for taxes. And there was other softwares like mint.com was your concierge for account for financial financial right right and TurboTax was your like concierge for accounting and taxes and we saw this kind of opportunity to do the same thing for um, digital marketing so instead of having an account manager you talk to all the time imagine if you just had a lightweight tool in your app that helped in your phone that helped you understand kind of what's going on 
um, how your advertising is performing, what you can do to do better. We basically wanted to take the account manager and turn it into a mobile application to make it more scalable. And, you know, we went back and forth through a couple of ideas and some ways that we think we could kind of pull it off. We ended up applying to the Techstars Accelerator and somehow they let us in. We were the earliest company they'd ever let in, but they were like, if someone's going to solve this ad tech problem, it's going to be you guys coming from Google. So before we could accept that, I had to decide if I was actually leaving Google to go all in on this. And I knew that if I just were to sign the dotted line, it would give me like a, a D-Day that I could leave Google. So I kind of forced my hands. And honestly, I left one day before my third vesting of stock vested. So I left quite a bit of money on the table, but I knew that that was the trick, right? I'd always be leaving money on the table and it only gets harder the lo you know, longer you wait, the more, the older in life you get, you know, you have responsibilities, you have more money on the table. So I just knew if I was going to do it, I just had to do it. So I just jumped and went for it. So, so you go into uh, the uh, tech stars, you and Dan, and your business proposition for ad hoc was to target people that you were helping with their Google advertising, but basically you were trying to give them a tool that was going to bring together their array of digital advertising. So not just what they were doing in Google, but maybe what they were doing in Facebook and helping them to optimize their spend. Was that the, the goal here? Yep, that's right. Right, okay. And so, so now you've, uh, how long was the Techstar program? So Techstars program was for three months. Um, it was in Boulder, Colorado. So I packed my stuff up, moved to Boulder, Colorado, um, had nothing. Like all the companies joining Techstars had a companies with revenue. We had literally just formed an LLC on the drive to Techstars. We, like, we were the earliest company I think they have ever let in. Um, but we spent four and a half months in Boulder. My co-founder, myself and my co-founder's girlfriend at the time, all shared a two-bedroom apartment. We hired an engineer and a marketing person. They slept in the living room of the apartment. So we had, you know, five people living in a very small two-bedroom apartment in Boulder, Colorado, one of which being my co-founder's girlfriend, which, you know, ended up being a, a very interesting group of people to spend 14 hours, 15 hours working with, and then all night with. So it was a good bonding experience for us five. Right. So you created this business and then did you immediately uh, think that you needed to go out and raise money or were you able to get clients before you actually had to do a raise? G give me a sense of the timeline of tech stars, raising money, generating revenue. How did that hang together? Yep. So um, we literally applied to tech stars with like a spreadsheet. It was a prototype uh, that we had been playing with that we were getting some traction on. And we had this because we didn't have a code. We had to do it that way. And honestly, I wouldn't have done any different. Like everything we did, we hacked together or found a way to do it manually, but made it seem like it was automatic. And that kind of instilled a grittiness mindset to us, one. But two, it installed the mindset of test things and try things before you go out and code and build something because that is much more expensive and takes a long time. So during Techstars, we had one mantra and it was grow our money managed. So we looked at one KPI, how much money are we managing? We had this free dashboard in Excel. And what we were doing is we were telling customers that it updated every morning and it outputted these really beautiful graphs and insights. Really, it was a bunch of macros that we programmed over the course of a week 
Um, and then we didn't even connect to the AdWords API. We would literally go in and manually download their data and upload it. And we wrote a little bit of code ourselves that we taught ourselves, but it was like scripts. It wasn't code. So we started mm -hmm. in a very hacky way, but every month, again, we were showing dots, not, we were showing lines, not dots. Every week we would send out a note to a bunch of investors that we had met through the Techstars program saying, Hey, we are now at, you know, 4 million managed. Now we're at 6 million money managed. Now we're at 10 million money managed. And we were just laser focused on that kind of showing investors that we could grow this thing. Imagine if you gave us money. Uh, so we really grew that one KPI number one and number two, we got some really good feedback, which was the second you take on a paying customer, you're now stopping investors from dreaming. So if you kind of a, are a pre-revenue company, investors have this ability to dream about how big you can be. They can play with the union economics and the pricing in their head. You can provide a vision. You can provide some models to kind of show where the company can be. The second your first paying customer comes in, they can say, oh, well, you have one paying customer paying you $200 a month. Why don't you tell me how many paying customers you have in a week or in two weeks or a month or two months? But then you're starting to solidify those numbers, which you kind of stop the investors from dreaming about the opportunity. So we decided that we were not going to take on any paid customers. We were just going to continue to grow the hacky application we built and, you know, continue to build these free customer base, uh, allowing investors to think about how much money we could make if we took 20% of ad spend, which we ended up doing. Um, so right after Techstars, they have demo day, which is like the final day to you know, show off your product. And again, at that time, all of the other companies in the cohort were having their first investor conversations and it took them two months to raise money. Well, we had been showing, we had having investor conversations since day one, just giving them updates, asking for advice, showing lines, right? Not just dots. We were connecting the dots every week. So at demo day, we were basically able to close our entire funding round just that day alone. Whereas every other company, it took a while for them to actually close it. But again, demo day wasn't the first time they heard about us. That was like the last time they'd heard about us. So that, that's a really important point here is that, you know, just like you talked about as you were networking through, you know, college, um, even before you had, you were revenue producing in this new business, you were out there marketing yourself, communicating with potential investors about what you were doing, what you aspired to do. And as you put it, you know, allowed them to dream. Um, that's really a, a well thought out plan. Yep. And you're modest too. <laughs> Listen, I think, uh, we did everything we can. We just tried to outwork anyone. We knew early on that we weren't necessarily the smartest people, but we would just outwork you. And that's kind of what we still, we still do. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. And so along the way, so you, you had your first round mm -hmm. and then you'll, you'll talk in a bit about how you've morphed the business a bit into flooring. I, I think that's a really interesting point, but take me from getting through Techstars, getting your first round ad hoc as a tool to simplify your digital advertising is what you did for a period of time, correct? Yep. So um, in 20... Right after demo day, so 2015, uh, summer time, we closed 
our seed round. It was, I think, all in $2.1 million, um, led by a couple of really good investors. Actually, the first money in was my father, but the second money in was my co-founder's old boss. So to kind of wrap that whole story up, they ended up becoming friends again um, after Google and just kind of saying, I'm going for it at Startup Life now. And that kind of put them together. Um, so it was like my co-founder's second father put you know, money in, my dad put money in. Um, and that's really what propelled us to kind of start raising the 2.1 million. Really grew the business well. I mean, the business was growing in 2015. We had a small office of a few folks in 2016. Um, you know, we were about 25 people. We were profitable. Honestly, we were growing rapidly heading into 2017. Again, profitable, growing. I, I can't remember at this time how much revenue we were doing, but I think we were doing about four and a half, maybe five million in, in recurring revenue. And that's when Founder Collective reached out to us. Founder Collective is one of the best seed funds, kind of Series A funds. Um, they only invest in one round so that they're always on the same dilution schedule as you so they can always fight on your behalf everyone i know had talked highly of them david frankel their founder wanted to join our board it was it, we had no, we were not interested in fundraising but they had been following our investor email updates every month and literally reached out and we're like listen we'd love to talk because you guys are doing something really cool again another example of just keeping people updated you never know as you build that network so Ended up taking a very unnecessary at the time opportunistic $2.5 million and that changed our business forever. It gives a chance to take a step back and basically say, what are we, what are we doing here? Right? We're doing a lot of revenue. We have all these different types of customers. Um, we now have money, more money than we need, right? Cause we still had like 1.5 of that 2.1 in the bank. Well, like what are, what are we doing here? So it gives a chance to take a step back and start analyzing our data. And what we realized was astonishing. It was 90% of our customers, but about 30% of our revenue all came from the flooring industry. And we had no idea why. And what we looked at was there was a company, Floorforce, that we were working with. They had a website platform for flooring retailers. And they were building kind of a lot of other tools around that. They kind of viewed themselves as the dealer.com, which is you know kind of a full stack operating system for auto dealerships they viewed themselves as that for the flooring industry but they needed help with advertising so they came to us we started scaling with them and the reason we didn't know is because it looked like in our crm multiple customers it really all came from one customer right we had one customer that kind of opened up the doors to you know 10 20 30 customers which was a lot for us at the time so started building a relationship with these guys found it really interesting. The flooring industry is an $80 billion industry. It is a super, super interesting one. It is not transparent. It is a lot of friction. The whole process started to get to know, to get to know the founder there. So I had a, you know, I started to get an inkling that there was something there. The other thing I liked about flooring and something that we struggled with was a, as a business was we were trying to build a tool for everyone, whether you spent a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, where, whether you were a car dealer, or a oh, selling t-shirts online, we were building ad hoc for you. But what we really saw, although we were growing revenue, I knew in the back of my head, I couldn't be a billion dollar company. We couldn't be a billion dollar company if we didn't have a focus because we were building a good tool for everyone. We weren't building a great tool for anyone. I'd rather build a great tool for one type of customer, not a 
good tool for everyone. So start to get to know the, the Floor Force guys even more. And one day I got a call from John, the CEO of Floor Force, and he said, listen, the largest flooring manufacturer in the world reached out. We do a lot of the websites for them, but they're launching a co-op marketing program where every time a retailer buys product from this manufacturer, a certain percent goes back into advertising and they need someone to execute that advertising for their, you know, 2000 retailers. He said, well, you come to Sarasota, Florida and, and pretend you work for Floor Force to help me sign this deal. So got there, signed that deal overnight. It was a hundred thousand, I think, month recurring revenue deal. And the biggest deal we had ever signed, the biggest deal they had ever signed by leaps and bounds. And at that day, I realized that we were basically in bed together. Um, so knew that we, you know, there was something, started going to some conferences with him and just honestly realized that there was such a big opportunity in the flooring industry that heading into 2018, we ended up acquiring Floor Force and kind of starting to draw the, the blueprint to go all in on the flooring industry. That's incredible. It's amazing. The, uh, the progression, I, I don't know what you put out, you know, what you say publicly, you know, can you give us a ballpark of how big, what kind of uh, revenue base you're working with today? Yeah, we're doing about 25 million in recurring revenue. Oh, that's, uh, that's amazing. And your, your total raise at this point is, has been what? Uh, so we raised, we've raised 17.7 million, 13 million of that was right after the acquisition of floor four. So just to kind of end the story of where we're at today. So I ended up acquiring them or kind of in the middle of 2018 and going into 2019, there was a big transition happening. It was very slow. We were trying to figure out how to do it. We were basically running an ad tech business, but also a flooring software business, um, you know, building software for flooring retailers, but also ad tech for everybody. It got really hard. It got really, really hard. At one point it felt like the same company and then it just, felt like I was building two separate companies, but there was a problem. And that was, it started to divide the culture. It started to just make even doing all hands and team meetings and company-wide meetings hard. I felt like I was always dancing around, like, how are we going to integrate? What's the long-term future of both companies? And it became just, I realized that the opportunity cost of running kind of both businesses, although I knew that they could work together we needed to have a focus. I needed to go back to having a focus and I couldn't focus on all SMBs and flooring retailers successfully. So it took me, it took our whole team a year to basically draw out the blueprint where if we wanted to go all in on flooring, here's what we had to do. And it took us a year to do all of that. And there was two massive things that we had to overcome or three really overcome. One, I had to convince my board, right? My board who knew nothing about flooring had just invested in this growing ad tech business, I had to convince them I wasn't crazy and that I'm going all in on the flooring industry, which was hard enough of a conversation. One. Two, I knew that we, if I did that, there would be duplicative jobs and roles at the company. So there would be a riff, right? A reduction in force of people that I'd have to let go, not because they did anything wrong, but because we just didn't have roles for them. And that was probably one of the hardest days of my life. And then lastly, I was giving up. I mean, as a company, we gave up probably eight million in revenue, recurring revenue. So I sit here today, and although I'm happy with the revenue we're at, we've grown so tremendously over the last year and even in the last month, I think about how hard I clawed for that eight million in revenue and how I basically one day threw it all out the door. 
Um, but that's kind of how the whole transition happened. It took a really long time. Well, sometimes you have to take a step back, you know, to take the, yep. the two steps ahead and, um, you know, the, all the cliches about pivoting your business and, and realizing that uh, the bigger opportunity is, is something that you hadn't planned for. And it, it sounds like it's worked out. So now exclusively you're working, your support, your ad tech is supporting the flooring industry. Yep, exactly. And that, um, we made that change. December, I want to say it was December 14th. I should know the day because that day was definitely one of the hardest days I've had in my career where we had to let 10 people go. Again, nothing to do with anything other than we just had duplicative roles and it wasn't fair for them. It, it, it made no sense for them to be there. So we had to let some people go and make the announcement that we were going all in on the flooring industry. I think the writing was on the wall, but at the same time, the writing wasn't on the wall. You know, it was almost like ignorance was bliss. And we played under that for a long time. We gave all of our customers a 45-day notice um, that we were no longer going to service them. And as of, I think it was like January, January, I want to say 14th, we officially had no more SMB customers. It's all in the flooring industry. So we are still talking like, so it's relatively new for, I think, most folks. But for me, you know, this has been a mental challenge for a year and a half. Right. Well, you know, you've gone through, um, you know, pivots and, you know, changes of your business and then, you know, something that nobody wants to do, uh, the reduction in force. How many employees do you have now? We have 160 employees. And what's just to add to that even further was I was also, not only was I knew we were letting go of some folks, we were also acquiring Floor Force's only competitor in the industry. And my plan was, could I make them happen at the same time? How could I, you know, they were doing four to 5 million in revenue. I knew I could close that 8 million revenue gap by adding them. They were adding 30 people. We were getting rid of 10 people. So it was a, it was a massive, it was a massive operational thing for us to do, which was a headache. And it was so difficult. I still stress out thinking about how we were able to pull all that off, but and now it's now all very clear and, and it's confusing anymore, but that was a very tough, you know, three to four week stress of trying to do all of that at one time. Right. So uh, we're getting down towards the end of our show here, but, but before I get to our two minute drill, talk to me a little bit about, so now you're in flooring. Are there other verticals within the home business that you think ultimately you want to tackle in the same way you've done flooring? Yeah. So Flooring's interesting. $80 billion industry. If you've ever bought flooring at a flooring store, it's a painful, painful process. Um, and we're building the operating system for flooring retailers. So think of CRM, website, digital marketing, chatbot, um, kind of ERP, point of sale system. We're building the whole stack to be a good flooring retailer. Today, we have about 2,000 retailers um, that we work with, with websites and about 3,000 all in from various different things. And What's really interesting is a flooring consumer is the most valuable consumer in the whole home remodel space. So today across our network of websites, we generate about three to 4 million uniques every single month. So what's really starting wow. to happen is non-flooring companies like window coverings and paint and furniture companies are coming to us saying, how can I get my products on your retailer's websites? Because after your retailers sell them flooring, they're going to go to Home Depot, your retailer's biggest competition, and they're going to buy all these other products from them. So how can we help you? So 
really where I'm going with that is we're not going to get into other industries, but other industries are coming to us because the first purchase you make is flooring and then you're going to go buy furniture, paint, window covering. So how can we work with these other industries and help them sell via our websites, which helps them, which helps our retailers make new money as well. So that's kind of how we parlay ourselves into other industries. Well, yeah, that's incredible. It's really interesting. And uh, you should be really proud of what you and, and your team and your, your co-founder have uh, created. So uh, con continued good luck to you. We're getting down to the, uh, the end of our show and, and something that we do here is a two-minute drill, kind of keeping with the, uh, the marketing playbook and the, the little bit of the sports theme. So I'll ask you a few questions. Uh, just give me something that pops into your mind. If you want to expand on it, uh, be my guest, but we don't, we don't need you to hurt yourself thinking too hard on it. I know you're tired. Sure. Um, all right. So a brand that you admire or that inspires you? That's a good question. I, I'm going to go with a um, rather off the beaten path one, a company called Drift. Drift um, was a couple of, I think the chief product officer at HubSpot left to start Drift. It's a simple chatbot company, but they do B2B marketing better than possibly any company I've ever seen to the point where this very, very simple chatbot has turned into a five, 600 person company based in Boston. Rumors are that they're going public. They've done this all on the back of unbelievable B2B marketing. They were kind of the leaders in like the raw video. You don't have to make a big commercial video, just get content out there. The VP of marketing at the time, his name's Dave Gearhart. He would just film videos and walking down the street, talking about things, talking about you know his thoughts on marketing, all this raw footage. And they built they built like a, a cult following over a chatbot in a matter of four yeah. years, built a massive infrastructure, built conferences, built all, it came out of nowhere. And it all was on the back of this unbelievable B2B marketing. And we try to look at them as much as possible. We try to think about, you know, marketing business to business. Right. Right. Okay. Favorite app on your phone. I'm going to give it to two. My favorite app on my phone, there's no question about it, is Twitter. I would delete every app on my phone, including my email, which would give me a heart attack and slack. But Twitter, I use Twitter more than any app on my phone. I honestly see makes me sound like a millennial, but I don't know how I would get my news without it like at all. It keeps me up to date on all the news. I think Twitter gets a bad rap when people used to follow like their friends and they would say like, I'm walking down the street. And it's just yeah. not informative, right? I follow journalists from every single paper that I like, from all the sports organizations I like. And it gives me not headlines. It gives me actually interesting perspective in 200, whatever it is, 40 characters. It's definitely my most used and the app I love the most. But if I were to look at one that kind of ties it, it is Superhuman, which is my email app. It costs $29 a month, which I never thought I'd pay for an email app. But it makes my email so much easier to get through that I actually enjoy it. And the only reason I'm bringing that one up is because I used to hate email. Now that I have the app, at least I can, I don't mind it. So it's a huge gap of that. It's been able to kind of uh, close for me. Yeah, that's but Twitter's a, that's still a good one. one. I haven't, I, I haven't heard of superhuman. Okay. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from. Hotel tonight. <laughs> okay. It's actually funny. They were bought by Airbnb. Um, it's great for last minute booking. They kind of do the thing where 
as the day progresses, the prices get cheaper because these hotels have to fill rooms. Um, so whenever I go to a city, I'm never worried about booking. It's mobile first. I've never been on their desktop site. So their mobile app is so easy. You just click a button and it uses Apple Pay, purchase the hotel room fee right there. So I usually will fly in at, like when I'll get to my Uber, right before I'm walking to an Uber or Lyft, I'll literally pick which hotel I'm going at um, because the prices will be so cheap. So hotel right. tonight, definitely the okay. answer. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? Coding. Oh, okay, you know, there you go. That's good. All right. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Well, you know, my mom has diabetes, so I got to go with JDRF. I've been part of that for a, a while, and um, I've gone to a bunch of charity events there. So definitely the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Okay. Um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? To go back in time. Because there's a lot I know now. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you wish we, we wish we knew what we, uh, what we know. Yeah. Um, all right. So the last one, other than family, your most prized possession. You know, I was thinking about this one for a while. And what is my most prized possession other than my family, which is definitely my most, my most prized possession? Um, what's yours? Ah, my golf clubs. Huh. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually staring at my golf clubs right now. I was thinking about that. My most prized possession. I'm trying to think of how I could say that without making me like, I want to say my computer, my cell phone, because I can connect it to everyone everywhere. But that makes me sound a little bit like a workaholic, but that's probably my answer. Probably my cell phone, right. unfortunately. All right. Well, that's okay. <laughs> hey, we're out of time. We're, we're out of time here. This was um, really interesting. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we, you know, we're family friends and, and I've known you for quite a while. Uh, it's really great to hear your story um, and to see how things have progressed for you. It's, uh, you know, you're, I know your dad and your mom are really proud um, of everything that you've accomplished. And uh, certainly uh, your friends in, in, in Westfield, for sure, are, are proud of what you've done. So congratulations uh, and best of luck to you. And uh, perhaps we'll uh, somewhere down the road, we'll get an update and we'll hear when you get to the $100 million mark. That'd be great. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Todd Saunders for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, it's not what you know, but whom you know. Networking and communication could be the difference between your success and your failure. Number two, show lines, not dots. Basically, show the progression of your plan and the trajectory of your business, not individual data points. And number three, if you're in the business of building tools for your customers, build a great tool for one type of customer rather than a good tool for everyone. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.